Please turn with me in your Bibles to 2 Peter chapter 3. We'll be looking at verse 11 through 13 this morning. And as you're turning there, let me just say, the reason I had the readings that we read this morning read from Revelation 21 and Isaiah chapter 65 and 66 is because they highlight for us the idea that the world that's coming is a world of sinless perfection. There will be no sin in that place. In both of those places, it's described as being cast out away. There is no sin in the world to come. And the the second thing that those passages highlight that I also wanted to bring to your attention, just to get us thinking about the sermon this morning, is that everything that we have done in this life, the only thing that remains from this old world in the new world is the faith and love of God's people for their God. God's love for them and their love for Him and our faith and love in the world to come are made perfect, sinless. And both of those ideas are very, very encouraging for us and will help us as we come into the sermon this morning. Well, the main idea of the passage that's in front of us is the hope that we have for transformation. Transformation means change towards sinless perfection. And we as believers in Christ have been transformed by the Holy Spirit. We are being transformed progressively in sanctification. And we have the awesome hope that we will be transformed made sinlessly perfect in the world to come. And these are the ideas that Peter is dealing with in the text before us. Well, let me review where we've been just a little bit. Let me place these verses in their context. We've been in a series in 2 Peter on Christian growth in general. In chapter 3 of 2 Peter, we've been in a series in growing in confident assurance of Christ's soon return. Confident assurance in Christ's soon return. And as we think about that, we remember that when Christ returns... It means the destruction of this world by fire, total destruction of the universe by fire. And so Peter is teaching us in chapter 3 to grow in a confident assurance in Christ's return and in the destruction of this world, total destruction by fire of this universe. Now, when I say confident assurance, we don't simply mean certainty, but we also mean a spirit of readiness, a desire, a longing an eager readiness for the return of Jesus Christ, and an eager longing and desire and readiness for the destruction of this present world. And Peter is teaching us that we should be growing in these things, and he's directing us in how to grow in these things. And so, so far in chapter 3, Peter has told us that in order to have this confident assurance, this spirit of readiness, even this spirit of hastening, of the coming of Christ, verse 1 through 2, we must first remember the gospel. We're rooted in the gospel. We are loved by God. We are already washed in Jesus Christ, and God has given us his kingdom. Those assurances of the gospel is what roots this readiness and this desire for Jesus Christ to return again. Without Without the gospel, without an assurance that we have peace with God, there is no confident assurance in Christ's return or a desire to see this world burn. In verse 3 through 7, Peter tells us that we must put away all scoffing and trust in the Lord's promise that he is coming and trust him in his goodness in the destruction of the world by fire. There's no confident assurance, there's no readiness for Christ to return unless we put away scoffing and trust the Lord's goodness in his plan to destroy the world by fire. In verse 8 through 10, last week we saw that we must gain a right perspective on the timing of Christ's return if we're going to cultivate a spirit of readiness. 
we must, we must remember that Christ is ready to come already. This is what he means when he says he's coming soon. He's ready to come yesterday. He's ready to come now. The world to come is pressing in upon this age. The reason he hasn't come yet is because he's being patient on you. He's being patient towards you for your salvation, for your repentance. And that's a call to us to get ready. He's ready. We should be ready. It's also a reminder that when he does come, there'll be no time to get ready. It'll come quickly. It'll come in a moment, like a thief in the night. And so we must get ready now. We can't be presumptuous. We must be preparing ourselves to meet the Lord Jesus Christ, to face that day of judgment and the destruction of this world. We also must remember, we said last week, of who it is that we will meet, the eternal God, the transcendent one, face to face with God Almighty, through Jesus Christ. Powerful, amazing, wonderful things that excite our readiness and our desire for him to return. And then this morning in verse 11 through 13, we are going to focus on this idea of the hope of transformation. The hope for transformation that the coming of Christ promises us. This hope for sinless perfection. This hope for a new heavens and a new earth. Not just the destruction of this world, but a reconstruction of a new world in which righteousness dwells. The Bible teaches that there is a transformation coming, a destruction of this world of sin and a reconstruction or a new creation of a world of sinless perfection. And the hope for this is vital to our growth in a spirit of hastening, a spirit of readiness, a confident assurance in Christ's return. And it is vital in general for our Christian growth. This is vital for our sanctification. This doctrine of the hope of perfection, brothers, is what drives ultimately our sanctification. Keeps us from being discouraged in it. Keeps us going in it. We know that God has promised us perfection. He's promised us progress in this life. We will make progress in the war against sin. And we will be made perfect in the world to come. Well, let's take a look at the text itself. Chapter 3, verse 11 through 13. Here's how Peter speaks. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn? But according to his promise, we are waiting for a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Well, we can break this text into three parts very simply. Verse 11, the necessary change that takes place in our lives as a consequence of the doctrine of the destruction of this world. The necessary change that takes place in our lives as a consequence of the doctrine of the destruction of this world. In verse 12, the change that it produces in our spirits. And in verse 13, the change that it promises in our bodies in the next life in the world to come. So we're going to look first at verse 11. The necessary change that takes place in our lives as a consequence of the doctrine of destruction. Look again at what he says in verse 11. Since these things are thus to be dissolved... What sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness? We're going to break this into two pieces. First of all, Peter is rooting uh, this whole argument that he's making here in the doctrine of the destruction of the world. Look at what he says there in the first part. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved. 
This is a reference back to verse 10. We looked at it very briefly last week. We said we'd look at it into more detail this week. So in your Bibles, look with me at chapter 3, verse 10. The language that Peter uses here is apocalyptic and vivid, and he's referring to the destruction of this world. He says, but the day of the Lord, that's the day of the return of Jesus Christ, will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Now we want to notice three things that Peter mentions here. The first is that the heavens will pass away with a roar. Now last week we mentioned that the idea here in general is swiftness. It's going to happen quickly. We used the illustration of an 18-wheeler running by, roaring by on the highway. It's a picture of swiftness, of quickness. Uh, In a moment, in the blink of an eye, so to speak, but it's with a roar. This idea of roar is this, is this language that Peter is using to describe swiftness. There's no time to respond to it. But this week I want us to notice something more about this passage or about this statement that Peter makes here. Notice that the heavens will pass away. They will pass away. They will perish. They will be gone with a roar. The heavens in the Bible is not simply limited to the sky. So part of what Peter means is that the very skies themselves will be evaporated, dissolved, erased, will pass away is the word that he uses here. But in the Bible, the heavens also include the invisible things. So we're not simply speaking about a destruction of the material universe. We're speaking about a destruction of the universe as a whole when he speaks about the heavens. He could also potentially mean the place where God dwells in heaven. You remember in the, in the Old Testament, God has a place. There's a place that we think of as heaven. There's a heaven. There's a place where the souls of the saints go. And they sit beneath the throne of God. There's a place where the sons of God uh, appear before the Lord. There's a place that we think of as heaven that's described for us in various ways in the Bible. Peter is telling us that the heavens will pass away. The things that God has made that are present will be destroyed. They are transient. They are temporary. Everything that we think of in terms of the heavens, the sky, the spiritual realm, the heavenly places, will pass away. The idea then is that nothing will be left but God and the souls of men. It's an unveiling, is the idea. It's a stripping back of the externals and the extraneous. It's a reducing of all things to two, God and man. It's a picture of us coming face to face with Him. Even the sky itself peeling back. And behold God. And there He is. And there we are before Him. In judgment before Him. And so Peter mentions this. The heavens will pass away with a roar. Secondly, he mentions the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved The heavenly bodies refers literally to the sun, the moon, and the stars. Some say that it refers to the elements of the universe itself, hydrogen and the molecules that make up this universe. It's a picture of dissolution. It will be dissolved is the word that he uses here. It means the whole material universe. He means the order and the structure of this universe. Not just the material elements of it. In the Bible, the idea of the sun, moon, and star, you remember back from Genesis, is that they would rule the day and the night. They're a picture of order. They're a picture of structure. They're a picture of the fundamental way in which this universe is arranged and ordered and governed by God. 
The sun, the moon, and the stars refer to the way that the calendars work in our universe. Those basic elements that we use as footing, uh, to, to think of things that are familiar, to think of order and structure of our universe. They will be burned up and dissolved. That means they will be completely lost. They will not be rearranged or redressed. They will be dissolved like salt and water, like smoke and air. Everything familiar to us will be gone. All places that we find comfort and that we call home, to whatever scale or magnitude you think, even to the very fabric of the universe, the way that it's ordered, will be gone. As an aside, I want to bring in the idea that even our relationships will evaporate. The things that we find comfort in and the people that we know and the kinds of relationships that we have with them. Now, we know that we'll still meet with each other in the world to come and in heaven, in the new world, in the new heavens and the new earth. We won't lose one another, but the nature of our relationship with one another will fundamentally change. You can see examples of this in the world that we live in with Marriage. Marriage only lasts until we die. It's temporary. It's transient. The relationship that we have with our children changes over time. It fundamentally is different as time passes by. The relationship that you have with your grown children is very different from the relationship that you had with them when they were infants and toddlers. Everything that we think of as familiar will burn and be dissolved. You have to understand that this is what Peter is getting at. He's not just simply thinking about a destruction of the physical universe as we know it. He's thinking about a a complete loss of the creation on every order as we know it. This present world is coming to an end. It's temporary. It's transient. God made it that way, as we'll see in just a little while. Now again, as an aside, let me just mention that this raises the tension in the Christian life, doesn't it? Because it makes you wonder if that's the case, where do I, why, why, am I, why do I care about the things of this life? Right? It's tempting to, to, to think about all of the things of this life burning away in this way and to fall into escapism. Some form of escapism, some form or idea that we just escape the world. Many Christians fall into this. You have heard of the Christian who hears about the soon coming of Jesus Christ and abandons their responsibilities and their life and their family and they do nothing but wait on Christ and they remove themselves from this world. There's a tension in the Christian life, isn't there? We are responsible and engaged in the world that we're in. We're, we, are, we love the gifts that God gives us in this life. And yet, we hold them loosely. And the doctrine of the destruction of the universe helps us with this. When we remember that everything that we have, even down to our relationships, is a gift of God. And it's going to burn. It's going to come to an end. It's a transient gift. This, on the one hand, causes us to be all the more thankful for it. To to hold it tightly. And to be thankful for it while we have it, while we can hold it. With Christian devotion, Christian love, and Christian duty and obligation and responsibility. And it preserves us from escaping it. And it preserves us from learning to to fall in love with it. So that we learn to enjoy the gifts that God has given us and to make use of them. But not to make them into idols. 
This is the danger that every Christian is facing. We're all facing. Everything that God has given us is transient. So we hold it dear with thankfulness, but we're always ready to let it go because it's transient. And this doctrine helps remind us of this great truth. Well, the point that Peter then is making here, the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, everything familiar, lost, is that when Christ returns, there will be nowhere to run but to Him. We are going to come face to face with God in judgment, and there will be no hiding place but Jesus Christ, God in the flesh Himself. And then Peter thirdly makes mention there at the end of verse 10 that the earth and the works done in it will be exposed The earth refers, of course, to the works that are done in it, the deeds, the accomplishments of men, their so-called righteousness. They will be exposed. They will be brought into judgment before Jesus Christ, and they will be burned. They will be tested by fire. The idea is that they will be tested by fire. And so what Peter is saying here is that everyone will be exposed in the day of judgment for who they really are as seen in their works. Unbelievers will be tried by the fire and their works and their deeds exposed and they will be seen to be unrepentant sinners who never loved or trusted in God with no faith and no love for Him. Believers will be exposed by fire and seen to be those who never trusted in their works, but trusted in Christ's works and trusted and loved God through Jesus Christ. On the final day, the works themselves will burn. All that will remain is the quality of those works, whether they were done in faith and love or whether they were not. You can see this in the way that Jesus speaks in John chapter 3, verse 19 through 21, where he tells us this is the judgment that men hated the light. They loved the darkness. They run from the light. And that men love the darkness and they hate the light, lest their deeds should be exposed. He's speaking of the unbeliever. Lest it be seen that they're sinners. But for those who are in God, who believe in Him, they come to the light so that their deeds might be exposed, so that it might be seen that they're done in faith and love towards God, that they're done in God. And so Peter tells us three things here, that heavens will pass away. There'll be nothing left but God face to face with man in judgment. The things that we're familiar with in this life, will be lost so that there's no refuge to run to but Christ himself. And our deeds will be exposed. They will be tested through this destruction and through this fire so that all, all that remains is the evidence of our faith and love to God. Peter's not the only one to speak about these things. He's speaking of biblical doctrine that comes from many places in the Scriptures. Isaiah chapter 34, verse 4, All the host of heaven shall rot away. That's the language of Isaiah. And the skies roll up like a scroll. It's a picture of them being peeled back like paper on a scroll. All their hosts shall fall as leaves fall from the vine, like leaves falling from the fig tree. Revelation chapter 6, verse 14, the sky vanished like a scroll. It was pulled back. It was peeled back. 
And every mountain and island was removed from its place. Every place to stand. Every place to hide. Everything to grasp onto. Gone. Nothing left but God face to face with man. Psalm 102, verse 25-27. through 27, Of old you laid the foundation of the earth, O God, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish. You will remain. They will wear out like a garment. You will change them like a robe. They will pass away. God will throw them away like an old garment. Gone. But you are the same. And your years have no end. All that remains is the unchanging God. And man face to face with Him. Joel chapter 3, verse 16. The Lord roars from Zion and utters His voice from Jerusalem, and the heavens and the earth quake. It's a picture of the destruction of the world. But the Lord is a refuge to His people, a stronghold to the people of Israel, those who run to Him and hide in Him. Jesus, in the Gospel, in Mark chapter 13, verse 31, says, Heaven and earth will pass away, will be lost, destroyed, but My words will not pass away. And therefore, our faith in them and our love for the one who speaks them will not pass away. These things are eternal. These things are forever. Well, Peter tells us then that there is a destruction of the world. And he says in verse 11, since these things are thus to be dissolved, since they're going to be destroyed in this particular way, this destruction of all things and all places of refuge, and even the works themselves will be tried by fire. So that nothing remains but faith and love in God. What sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness? Well, the obvious conclusion, the answer to his question is we ought to be people who trust and love in Christ. And that's what he says here. This is what he means when he says what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness. In the original, those two words, holiness and godliness, are in the plural. And, people, and translators don't translate it in the plural because it sounds awkward to say, what kind of people ought you to be in holinesses and godlinesses? <laughs> and it sounds a little silly to us. Well, we can take what Peter says here and we can rearrange it and translate it properly. Godly, holy lives is what he means. People who live lives of godly, holy works. That's the kind of people you ought to be. Well, remember that what he means by works isn't simply the good deeds that you do. He's not encouraging us to become Pharisees. He's teaching us about the quality of those works. They ought to be godly. They ought to be holy. That is, they ought to be done with devotion, trust, and love for Jesus Christ. So that we are seeking to live lives of good works, not for the sake of the works, but because of what those works manifest, what they communicate, the principle that they reveal in our own hearts, that God has done a work in us, that we have come to believe in Him. He has made us by His Holy Spirit to love Him. And we manifest that faith and love through the good deeds that we do. Because Christ says, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. And this is what Peter is getting at here. He's saying, look, since this is going to happen, all things are going to be passed away. You're going to be judged by the quality of your works. What kind of people ought you to be in lives of godly and holy works? Lives of trusting, devoted worship. This word godly, it means to trust in the Lord. Someone who's godly is someone who trusts in Him. Someone who is holy is someone who's devoted to Him, who loves Him. 
This is what we ought to be. But notice his language here. His language is really helpful for us in a number of ways. He says, what sort of people ought you to be? You see, a lot of people come to this passage. I bet you've come to this passage and you say, okay, so the world's going to be destroyed. Now, what sort of people ought you to be? You read it with a tone. (laughs) You read it with a tone of command. But Peter's exhorting us here. He's reasoning with us. The world is going to be destroyed. All that's going to remain is your faith and love in Christ. What kind of people ought you to be? These words, what kind, what sort, carries the idea of wonderful or amazing. And we can see this in a couple of places in the text. I just want to point them out to you. Remember, you don't have to turn there with me if you don't like, but Matthew chapter 8, verse 27, you remember the disciples were in the boat with Jesus, and it was stormy. And they were becoming afraid, and so they go and wake Jesus and said, Lord, behold, there's a storm. And Jesus wakes from sleep, and he, and he rebukes them for their lack of faith, and he calms the sea. And their response to Jesus is this, what kind of man is this? What, what a wonderful man. What a divine, holy, mysterious man is this. Peter's using the same language here. What kind of people ought you to be? What wonderful people ought you to be? What devoted people? What majestic people? Mark chapter 13, verse 1, they were coming out of the temple. One of the disciples said to Jesus, look at what kind of buildings, what kind of stones, what wonderful stones are these? What holy, well-constructed, beautiful stones these are. First John chapter 3, verse 1. See what kind of love the Father has for us that we should be called children of God. What wonderful love. What holy love. What merciful and gracious love. Well, Peter's using the same language here. We can't take this too far, but I thought it would be helpful to illustrate this with you. What kind of people ought to be? This is the tone that he's taking. The world's going to burn. All your idols, all your objects of lust, all your desires are going to perish. Every moment that you spend in this life wasting it on sin is going to burn away and be lost. What kind of people ought you to be? What wonderful people ought you to be as the consequence of this glorious truth? And it encourages us and it changes us. And it makes us into people like this. People who live holy and godly lives. People who express our faith and our love for Christ. And so how can we summarize what Peter has said in verse 11? We could summarize it like this. The destruction of the world means a peeling back of everything except God and man and his love for his people and his people's love for him. And the consequence is, is it brings us focus in our life. That what I'm focused on is living a life that expresses my trust in Him and my devotion, my love for Him. Because this is what matters. This is what remains. In the Lord, my efforts are not in vain. My faith and my love I carry with me into the world to come. Transformation this doctrine of the destruction of the world by fire produces lives of trust and love. It focuses our attention on our love for Jesus Christ.
Now, this doctrine will help you. Let me make some application. This doctrine will help you in the pursuit of sanctification. And it will help you in the pursuit of sanctification because it's very easy as believers to get caught up in the do's and the don'ts of the Christian life. Now, you have to focus on those. Those are very important. God has given us His law. He gives us commandments. He reveals His will to us. But it is very easy for us to get focused on the ins and the outs and the details of the do's and the don'ts of God's law and of God's will. And we can get discouraged by it because the more we try to obey God, the more we see that we fail to obey Him. (laughs) That the more we try to do or don't, the the more we don't and do. (laughs) And we all know this experience. We've been studying virtue ethics here at Heritage. And it becomes very discouraging as we seek to pursue virtue ethics. We've been attempting to pursue God's law, to put sin to death in our lives, and to be warriors against sin in our life. And it can become very discouraging if we get focused on these end results too much in our life, and we forget the principle, brothers, that the reason why we're seeking to be virtuous, the reason why we want to do God's will and to not do what He doesn't will, And the reason why we want to become warriors against sin is because we love Jesus Christ. We love Him. And if we love Him, we seek His commandments. We want to please Him. We want to do His will, not our own. And you say to me, yeah, but that doesn't help me too much because I also struggle with loving Him. (laughs) And that's when we remember that He loves us. That our love... So we remember the principle. We remember the root. He loves us. We love Him. And so we're seeking to live lives that express that love to him, that trust and that love. Do you understand that's what Peter's really getting at here? And it helps us. It transforms us. It focuses us on the main thing. So we don't get caught up in the do's and the don'ts. We remember that we love him. And because we love him, we want to do what he's commanded us. Now we want to take his commandments seriously. Now we invite anything that will help us to take his commandments more seriously, to live lives that are like him, that please him. His law is really useful for that. Virtue ethics is wonderfully useful for that. But it's not the thing. It's not the end. It's not the goal. The principle is our love for Christ that's ultimately rooted in his love for us. Peter is reminding us here, the world, all of this is going to burn. Even the works that you do are going to burn. They're going to be tested by fire. They don't last. They're transient. Don't focus on them. Remember the love Remember his love for you and your love for him. It lasts forever. It does not pass away. Since this is the case, what wonderful people ought we to be? And we will be. So verse 12, moving on. The necessary change it produces in our spirits, it lifts us up. Look at verse 12 waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God. Peter here is modifying what kind of godly lives we should live. They should be done in a spirit of waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God. So he's focused here on our spirits. The destruction of this world ought to produce in us a spirit of waiting for and hastening. And this is really Peter's main point in the whole section that we've been studying now for five weeks, and we will be studying. A spirit of waiting for. Waiting for it means to look forward to. That's the spirit that we have in Christ. To look forward to something means to be pleased and excited about it. We can't wait, so to speak, for the world to come. That we're waiting for it. A desire, anticipation, readiness. 
In practice, it means that we are imagining the moment that will take place. This is what people who are looking for something do. They imagine it occurring. They think about it regularly. They prepare for it by putting things in order so that when the moment comes, everything is as it should be or as they would would desire it to be. Someone who's looking forward to something. You understand this word when he says waiting for, the meaning is looking forward to it. You say, okay, that was too much of a technical explanation. What in the world are you talking about? What does it mean to look for something? You know, here it is, it's the holiday seasons. The perfect illustration of looking forward to something is a child looking forward to Christmas morning. Is it not? You remember being a child waiting for, looking for Christmas morning? (laughs) You remember how you thought about it? You imagined it? You looked at those presents you couldn't keep from thinking about it, wondering what was in those presents. And we're not going to get to the point yet, but you were also filled with a spirit of hastening, weren't you? (laughs) Everyone in the room who has kids knows, Mom, can we open the presents early? Every one of us who was a child, we remember. Can we do Christmas early this year? Come on, just maybe one present. A spirit of hastening. Come. I'm ready now. Can't we? Let's stay focused on a spirit of looking forward to. <laughs> what are we looking forward to? I'll give you some examples. Turn with me in your Bibles to Mark chapter 15, verse 43. In many ways, these passages are particular examples of this use of this language, waiting for. And its interpretation is looking forward to. But they're helpful for us to look at. They're encouraging. They lift our spirits. Mark chapter 15, 43 is an interesting place to begin. Joseph, this is Joseph of Arimathea, a respected member of the council... He's described here as also himself looking for. This is the same word that Peter uses here in our text, waiting for. Looking forward to the kingdom of God. This is an identity of who he is as a person. He trusts in Christ. He loves him. He's looking forward to him. That's the spirit by which he carries himself. And he, so he took courage and he went to Pilate and he asked for the body of Jesus. I mean, that's an interesting text. I have a lot to say about it, but let's move on. Luke chapter 2, verse 25. And Luke chapter 2, verse 38. You don't have to turn there, uh, but let me just read it for you. Now, there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, and this man was righteous and devout, waiting for, looking forward to the consolation of Israel. And the Holy Spirit was upon him. This is the spirit in which he carried himself. He looked for Christ. He looked for what? The consolation of Israel. Anna, in chapter 2, verse 38, and coming up at the very hour, she began to give thanks to God and to speak of Him to all who were waiting for, looking forward to the redemption of Jerusalem. Anticipating, ready for it, hastening it, praying for it. Romans chapter 8, verse 23, Paul speaks about this. Not only... He says, and not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruit of the Spirit grown inwardly as we wait eagerly, as we look forward to adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. It's interesting there how he links adoption with the redemption of our bodies. If we're children of God, brothers, we're children of God. We're children of the one who owns all things. If we're his children, then we're his heirs. (laughs) If we're his heirs, 
His will for us cannot be that we live in this squalor forever. This world must come to an end. That's the, that's the reasoning that Paul has here. On the basis of adoption, our bodies will be redeemed. I don't want to dwell on that point too much, but here we have, we're looking forward to what? The redemption of our bodies. Philippians chapter 3, verse 20 through 21, but our citizenship is in heaven and from it we await We look forward to a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like His glorious body by the power that enables Him even to subject all things to Himself. We look forward to Christ and the transformation of our bodies. 1 Corinthians 1.7, speaking to the Corinthians so that you're not lacking in any gift as you wait for, as you look forward to the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ. He identifies the Corinthians as those who are looking forward to Jesus Christ, His revealing. 1 Thessalonians 1.9-10, for they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you and how you returned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for, to look forward to His Son from heaven, whom He raised from the dead. Jesus delivers, Jesus who delivers us from the wrath to come. Again, Paul is saying here, the report has gone out. You not only turn from idols, but what identifies you, what characterizes you, the report that's going out about you is that you are looking forward to the Son of God coming and revealing Himself. And saving you from the wrath to come. Titus chapter 2 verse 13. I'm going to start in verse 11. The grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives of the present age. That's lives full of faith and love for Jesus Christ, waiting for, looking forward to the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ, who gave Himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for Himself a people for His own possession who were zealous for good works. We are looking forward to the revealing, the appearing of the glory of Christ. We're looking forward to the kingdom, the consolation of Israel, the redemption of Jerusalem, the redemption of our bodies, the transformation of our bodies, the revealing of Christ Himself. The Son from heaven. The appearing of His glory. Turn with me to Habakkuk chapter 2, verse 3. God commands us to look forward to Christ and the day of the destruction of the world. And the removal of the things that are in the way of our love for Christ and our devotion to Him. Habakkuk chapter 2 verse 3. The context here you remember is Habakkuk. He's complaining to the Lord. He says, Lord, You are holy. You are righteous. You are perfectly righteous. You are perfectly holy. And this world is filled with sin. Sin that has not been answered for. Sin that has not been accounted for. And we just seem to go on and on and on in this fallen world, in a world filled with sin. And this is the complaint that Habakkuk makes to the Lord. He's basically asking for an answer. What, how am I to think about this, Lord? <laughs> what am I to do about this? When are you going to come? When are you going to right all wrongs? When are you going to rid this world of sin? And God answers Habakkuk in chapter 2, verse 3. He says, For still the vision awaits its appointed time. It hastens to the end. 
It will not lie. If it seems slow, wait for it. There's the commandment. Look forward to it. That's the same language. Look for it. Anticipate it. Prepare for it. Pray for it. It will surely come. It will not delay. That's God's way of saying to Habakkuk, I know that I'm holy and righteous and I'm ready to come back, but you've got to wait for the time. But look forward to it. In the meantime, Habakkuk, look forward to it. Anticipate it. Prepare for it. Let it stir your love and your readiness for it. It's necessary that we look forward to it. Hebrews chapter 9, verse 28. Turn there with me. The spirit of looking forward to is part and parcel the Christian life. Hebrews chapter 9, verse 28. So Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear, appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for Him, who are looking forward to Him. The question you ought to ask is, who is Christ going to return for? Those who are looking forward to Him. He's not returning for those who aren't looking forward to Him, who aren't waiting for Him. It has power to help us. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 9 through 10, speaking about Abraham. By faith he went to live in the land of promise, as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise, for he was looking forward to. And it actually translates the word as it ought to be translated. Looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. His spirit of looking forward to enables him to leave his fatherland and to go out from that place to the place that God would show him and to suffer as he did. It was his hope that strengthened him and encouraged him like it did with Joseph of Arimathea. It gave him courage. This spirit of waiting for. This is what Peter is telling us. We're to be waiting for. And we're to be hastening. To hasten means to pray for. It means to say, Lord, come quickly. There's some debate about this. Some people say that to hasten the day of com- the coming of the Lord means that the more that we repent, the more likely it is He's going to return soon. And there's a lot of good men who have that opinion, and that's why I mention it, but I disagree with it. I think the simpler explanation is that what Peter means by hastening is we do what the Scriptures teach us. Lord, come quickly. We're praying for it. We're in such, we don't, and that doesn't mean that we simply tack it on the end of our prayers. It means that we've cultivated in our heart a love for Christ and a desire for Him, the desire to see Him, a desire to be with Him in a perfect world where there's no more sin. And so we pray. It becomes part of our prayers. Lord, come. Your kingdom come. It's the, first, it's the second request in the Lord's prayer. It's right up at the top. Hallowed be Your name. Your kingdom come. We're to be hastening it, praying for it, asking for it. Again, this is the illustration of the children who are looking forward to Christmas. They hasten it because they keep asking mom and dad, can we have it early? Can we have it early? Come quickly. Why wait? Notice that the way that Peter speaks here. Again, notice the language here. It's a waiting for, it's a hastening of the coming of the day of God. Now, this is noteworthy. And commentators have noticed this, this day of God. We expect Peter to say something different. We expect Peter to say the day of the Lord. Nobody in all of Scripture, no prophet, no apostle, maybe in a few places says, we're hastening the day of the coming of God, the day of God. 
the language that's used in Scripture is the day of the Lord, or the great and awesome day of the Lord, or the day of judgment. And then Peter comes along and he says, we're hastening the day of God. He uses this different language. You say, what what does it matter? Does it all resolve to the same thing? No, it's significant. It's helpful for us. Peter loves doing this. I've tried to bring this out to you throughout the series. Peter loves to uh, subvert our expectations. He loves to say things in a way that makes you stop and think about what he's saying, because it sounds weird. It sounds awkward. He doesn't say it in the way that you would expect him to. And he says, and he says controversial things. And I've tried to bring this out to you. He does it. He loves doing it. He does it all the time. <clears throat> But here he's doing it again. He doesn't say the day of the Lord, which refers in the Bible to the coming of the kingdom. Hastening, praying for the coming of the kingdom. Now that doesn't mean that we shouldn't pray for the coming of the kingdom, but that's not the language that he uses here, and it's significant. He doesn't use the language of judgment, the day of judgment. And what is the day of judgment for the believer? It's the day of vindication. It's the day when we are vindicated for our faith in Jesus Christ. His glory is vindicated, our faith in him is vindicated. And we're not praying for the coming of the kingdom, the way that Peter speaks here. And we're not simply, we're not simply praying for it. We're not simply pr- praying for vindication. We're praying for the day of God, the divine one, the eternal one. But what does he mean in the context? He means the revelation of the face of God in Jesus Christ. He means, in other words, what he's doing is he's focusing our attention on this idea that what we're longing for is to see God for the sake of seeing him because we love him. Because he loves us and we love him. Let the kingdom come. Let our faith be vindicated. Give us Christ. Give us the Lord God face to face. He's thinking about our vision of God. He's describing pure, undefiled love. For someone who loves God, it's enough to see him. Notice he connects this to the dissolution of the world, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God. The day when we will see God face to face. Because of which, the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. In other words, the reason why this world will perish is so that we might see God face to face with purity with nothing to distract us. No more sin. No more suffering. No more pain. Pure, undefiled joy in love face to face with God and Jesus Christ. A spirit of longing for, looking forward to, and hastening the day of God. This language, because of the heavens will be set on fire, the Heavenly bodies will melt as they burn, exclamation point. (laughs) You've heard it said, everything's in its pre-ash state. Very helpful statement. Everything's going to be lost. Everything is turning to ash. Everything is transient. This is not simply an exhortation to stop loving the things of this world. It's an exhortation for us to join with God in seeking its dissolution through prayer because it means that we come to God face to face. This world will be lost. It It will perish. It'll pass away, and we will be in the immediate presence of God face to face with the one who loved us, with the one that we love and that we trust in. This doctrine is a very liberating doctrine. It lifts our spirits. It's encouraging. It strengthens us in many ways. Let me just mention briefly that the natural man is always trying to preserve his life and his grasp on the things of this life 
but the believer in Jesus Christ knows how to spend both. He knows how to spend his life and the things of this world for the service of God, out of faith and in love, and to discard what's wasted, because that's its end. Ash, melting, loss, burning, and all that will remain is our faith and love. It's encouraging, lifts our spirits. We're looking forward to Christ. We're looking forward to seeing Him. We're looking forward to seeing Him in sinless love. And this is where he goes in verse 13, the change that God promises in the body in a new material world. This is very important to understand the things that we've said today. And so you can't miss it. Look at verse 13. But according to His promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Of course, the promise that he's making here is sinlessness, face to face with God. But the significant thing that we need to make sure that we pay attention to is that Peter's including sinlessness in the body, in the flesh, in a material universe. We're not simply preaching the doctrine of the destruction of this world. We're preaching a doctrine of a new world, a real world, a material world, a place in which we will be reunited with our bodies and resurrected bodies like Christ glorified bodies like Christ. The hope of the Christian life is not simply holiness in the abstract. It's holiness in the body, in the dirt, but sinless. That's the hope. It comes with all of the blessings, brothers. Praise the Lord that the sufferings of this life will end, that our diseases will fade away, that the Lord will wipe away the tears because of those things. But the source of it, the idea that is presented to us in Scripture is that we're saved from the presence of sin. It's a place of sinlessness in the body, in the world. Holiness, pure, sinless love for Christ. In the body, in the world. This raises the question of what will the new world be like? And some like to debate this question. Will it be entirely new? Will we recognize anything? Will I recognize myself? How new will it be? Will there be trees and butterflies and birds in that world? Will there be dirt? What do we really mean by a new heavens and a new earth? I mean, you've mentioned this total destruction of the order of the universe. (laughs) And God's going to recreate it new. Something else. Well, the fact of the matter is, is the Scriptures don't say. We don't know how similar it will be or how different it will be, and it doesn't matter, because that's not the point. It's easy for us to speculate on this. Peter emphasizes its sinlessness, that righteousness dwells there, whatever kind of place it is, however similar or dissimilar it is, it's where righteousness is. It's where our love for Christ is pure and undefiled forever and ever. One commentator put it like this, the only thing Peter emphasizes that seems to matter to him about the new earth is that no more sin presents itself there. It is perfectly pure, and God's people always do what God loves. No more corruption, no more temptation, no more battle with sin, no more sins of ignorance or presumption, no more omission, no more commission, no more desires out of order, out of place, no more opposition from sinners. It's a place where righteousness dwells. Praise the Lord. 
This is the hope of the whole scriptures. What's the hope of the Bible if it's not the hope of sinlessness in the body? That's the message of the incarnation. God marries himself to the creature in Christ Jesus. Genesis chapter 3.15, what does it mean? What is promised to us if not the destruction of the kingdom of darkness, the ushering in and the coming of a kingdom of righteousness, purity, holiness, love, pure love for God? What's the message of the book of a place like Exodus? You know, the highlight... The climax of the book of Exodus is the tabernacle. And the climax of the tabernacle is the revelation of God's name that He is the Lord who sanctifies His people. He dwells with them and they are sanctified. The holy God with men made holy in their love for Him. Book of Leviticus. I mean, we go, the whole Bible. Where will we stop? Jeremiah chapter 31, verse 31, the promise of the new covenant. God will write His law in our hearts. And that's already the case, isn't it? But it'll be perfect in the world to come. Ezekiel chapter 36, he's going to give his spirit to his people so that he can vindicate his holiness through them before the nations. Holiness, purity of love for God. That's the promise. That's the hope. Malachi chapter 4, verse 2. Verse 1 and 2, For behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven, when all the arrogant and all evildoers will be stubble. The day that is coming shall set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. Total destruction. Verse 2, But for you who fear my name, who trust in me, who love me, the sun of righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings. Well, what does he refer to? He means the healing of sin. <laughs> That's what he means. And you shall go out leaping like calves from the stall, full of life, full of joy, full of cheer. This is our hope in the body, in a world, a new creation. Well, the message of this passage is clear. Not only will God destroy the world and sin, but he will remake it again in holiness. And this truth about transformation has transformational power. It has already begun to transform you in your bodies and your spirits and your lives. And it will transform you in the life to come. As John says in 1 John chapter 3, verse 3, Whoever has this hope in him purifies himself, even as Christ is pure. Brothers, Christ is pure in his love for you. And it's that which causes us to seek to be pure in our love for Him. This doctrine focuses our lives on love for Christ. It lifts our spirits in a spirit of hastening. And it strengthens and encourages us in the body. It gives us hope. If you're in Christ, the application of this message is to look forward to His return. Look forward to the world to come. Look forward to a condition of being pure in your love for Jesus Christ. Pray for it. Hasten it. Maybe you're saying to me, I don't know if I have a spirit of readiness. We'll pray that the Lord would give you a spirit of readiness. That you would grow in these things. The context of the book of 2 Peter is not that we're perfect. It's that we're growing in this spirit of readiness. 
I remember when I was a young Christian, you probably have had this experience or you may currently be having this experience. I would hear a message about Christ's return and that I should pray for him to come quickly. And I was a young Christian, I was a teenager, and I would go home and I would lay on my bed and I would pray to the Lord God and I would say, I want to pray for you to come quickly, but I'm interested in this girl and I've got a, I want to go, I want to build a career. I want to have a life. I want to have children. I don't want you to come quickly. <laughs> Because that's our natural temptation. That's what we are by nature. The whole point in 2 Peter is Peter's teaching us to grow in this spirit of readiness, to learn to hold those things loosely, be thankful for them, but to hold them loosely because the thing that trumps them all is our love for Jesus Christ because of his love for us. So don't be discouraged. Keep growing. That's the message. Grow in the grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ. Don't lose your stability by following scoffers and lawless men. Grow in the grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. You have to grow in it. It doesn't come perfectly in this life. So even where we fall short, it ought to stir our thirst for the return of Jesus Christ. If you're outside of Christ, really the message of the sermon today is that you need transformation. You are outside of Christ. You are apart from Him. You need the old man of sin destroyed, and you need a new man recreated. You need God to do a miraculous and wonderful work in your life to make you new, to teach you faith and love for Jesus Christ. You can't transform yourself, but the God who is able to transform the universe is the God who is able to transform you, and he promises you if you call upon him, he will transform you. He will give you faith. He will give you love for Jesus Christ. And he will make you holy. He will be the Lord your God who sanctifies you.